and welcome back to Hey Look Listen. My name is Liam Sheehan and I'm joined here by my good pal, Kevin O'Carroll. Kevin, how is December treating you, my friend? Good, Liam. Good. Getting through it. Christmas is coming. And um, with that, hopefully, you know, some more video games because I am basically a child. (laughs) I didn't think, actually, we've picked uh, villains as our topic for tonight, you know, which is uh, one we've been wanting to do for a while. Just chat about some of our favorite, maybe least favorite villains, you know, in that kind of energy. But this is technically our Christmas episode. No, surely we'll have another one out before then, I don't think so. Okay. I think this is the Christmas one, so Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, Happy Christmas. No, I'm just I just double checked. No, the next release date is after Christmas. Okay. What is more Christmassy than villains, evil, powerful Santa's a powerful man, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. He's very much think of the harm he could get up to if he wanted to. That's yeah. Maybe he does have a villainous origin story that we don't know about. But before we rattle into all that, Kevin, please tell me, what are you playing at the moment? So uh, off the back of our last episode where we spoke about the Game of the Year nominees, we all kind of uniformly agreed correctly that the Game of the Year award <laughs> was going to go to Baldur's Gate. Yeah. And off the back of that conversation, I finally got around to starting Baldur's Gate. Very good. Oh, baby. <laughs> uh, jobs are good. It is absurdly good. It's ridiculously good. It's obnoxiously good. It's annoyingly good. Like, um, going into it, I assumed that there's no way that it was going to take Tears of the Kingdom's crown away from my personal game of the year. I still think maybe it hasn't, but that's because I think Tears of the Kingdom is like a a once-in-a-generation masterpiece. Any other year, Baldur's Gate would have cleaned cleaned up. It would be pretty much anything else I've played in the last decade. It's very, very impressive. Um, buggy, though. It does have its bugs. I um, sent you a message about one. Pre- you did, yeah. <laughs> I think I sent you a, a crude photo taken on my blurry phone where basically <laughs> in, in a sort of, I don't know, climactic dialogue between me and one of my companions, um, the game just fully failed to load the dialogue options. It just had like persuasion not found intimidation not found let the matter be uh, <laughs> it's exactly what you want for immersion isn't it yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully it wasn't anything too pivotal i still don't know what it was i never never went to look it up but um there's been a couple of like visual bugs as well there's one where for some reason um enemies that i've killed will replay their death animations the first time I look at them, the corpses stay on the ground for a while after the fight. So if you pass, if I'm passing through like a, a an area after I've had a fight there, I swing the camera around. All of the enemies are standing up again, and as soon as I look at them, they lie back down with their death animations as if they've just been caught doing something they shouldn't. Like they were extras <laughs> or out of shot on the camera. And as soon as the camera turned around, they remember they're supposed to be dead. It's um, that's less annoying than the sort of actual content being missing, but it's still quite silly. Um. I don't want to get into it anymore uh, simply because I think most of what needs to be said about that game, uh, Morrissey covered on our last episode. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to, to dwell on it much further. Only to say that like, if you've been hearing that this game is great from multiple sources and you're still not sure, but you know, here's another one. Uh, this game is great. It is well worth the play for pretty much anyone, regardless of whether you're into to CRPGs or not. It's doing something very special. Exciting. 
just constantly get more exciting to, excited to play that i've put it off for a while now so i'm late to the game but i'm gonna start it over probably christmas new year's mm-hmm. see what that zeitgeist is all about you know and then i could be a part of the reindeer games exactly yeah you can be ben affleck too he was in that right mm, yes <laughs> cool i took a swing and i was immediately unsure um so liam what are you playing at the moment not much to be honest uh okay, since last cool, time no i have something though but since last time we recorded i actually haven't been doing much gaming i think i'm building myself up for my designated christmas games just haven't put much time towards it but you recommended a game to me and that's what i'm playing at the moment actually oh cool it's um based off of french province so excuse me if i miss oh please it. please say it Oh, no, I didn't think this. Would, now, now I'm properly like nervous. No, because like, genuinely... I, I, I did French for seven years, and I am still wholly like without confidence anytime I try to say it out loud. So I just All want right. you. So I you want you to try it first. Sure. I'll say it after you, and we'll both have a go at it. I don't know for sure, but I'm just looking is forward it, to hearing you say it. Is it Dordogne? <laughs> Shit, that's actually that's yes. Actually, yeah. Pretty. <laughs> I was hoping for a bit of Dordogne. Dordogne is, you know, what I almost said, I think. But then when you built it up, I, I thought I have to make an attempt at this. Dordogne? Yeah. Dordogne? 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 Yeah. I yeah. wanted... I wanted Something a, like that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I wanted a quiet indie game. I literally messaged you going, I want to play a quiet indie game. It's what I'm in the mood for just for an afternoon. I've, broke, I, I've broken it down to these two games. Mm-hmm. You, went, you went both good games. How about this third option? And you told me about this game I'd never heard of. Um, Dordong. 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 It's about a, a woman um, revisiting um, her grandmother's home. And then while, kind of while she was there, kind of reminiscing about uh, childhood she spent there in the summer. And um, I'm not actually... It, I, I imagine it's a short game, but, you know, I haven't actually mm. finished it yet. Okay. But I'm kind of vibing with it in a big way, though. Yeah, it's it's kind of lovely. It's exactly what I was looking for. It's just kind of gentle. It, it's ostensibly an adventure game, kind of, but the puzzles mm-hmm. are light, like quite light, you know? Yeah, for sure. So it's more just to kind of be in the setting, kind of experience it, experience the story, you know? There's sort of a kind of a mystery behind it, but a lot of it's just kind of playing the kind of video game version of childhood nostalgia with, yeah. with a beautiful, gorgeous painterly art style. Mm-hmm. I think it draws big influence from, and speaking of things that we have no right to be trying to pronounce and butchering, <laughs> I want to go with uh, Boku no Natsu Yasumi, the, um, yes. the Japanese video game series that are essentially just games about childhood, just yeah. su- summer holidays. I think the original Boku no Natsu Yasumi is, um, I think it's just set in like one summer in, in like the month of august in 1981 or something like that and you just basically play every day of this kid's summer holiday staying with family and i think in those games you have a bit more freedom you can kind of choose what activities you get involved with like go fishing or catching bugs or go explore the forests or whatever uh Dordain is a bit more linear in that regard yeah but there's definitely there definitely seems to be a bit of a, a, an inspiration or a through line between the two for sure is that one of our favorite uh, content creators made like an eight hour long video on that on that game, mm. right? Um, yeah. Action Tim Rogers. Button. Action yeah. Button Games, Tim Rogers. And I remember watching it in anytime you, whenever he releases a video every like year or so, mm-hmm. I always watch it like it's an episode, like it's a series. I watch it like, you know, in 20 minute chunks, you know? Yeah. Getting through the eight hours. Like these videos are literally eight hours long. But I just remember looking at that game and going i'd love to be there and that's kind of how i'm feeling with this game it's kind of scratching that itch a little bit because i going back um years and years into my childhood there was a lot of that in you know 
on a lot of games I play, like a lot of my favorite games I play, like Final Fantasy, like a lot of the LucasArts adventure games. Like I talked about the LucasArts adventure games a lot on this podcast over the years, yeah. and I've kind of managed just by kind of, you know, getting my own thoughts out of my head while talking about recording these episodes. I one of the things, the conclusions I came to about that about those games is that it is kind of a sense of place is one of the main things about them. Yeah, you know, more so than the puzzles. It's, it, the puzzles are kind of the avenue that gets you kind of. Exp- being in these places and they're much more um often much more kind of domestic and cozy than you know the exciting places like a lot of adventure or action games would take you and i think i just am very into the idea of that i was always really into harvest moon when i was a kid i was always really yeah. into um animal crossing the, the original gamecube animal crossing harvest moon particularly like that's like a farming sim at its core but it kind of there's dna it shares with door dogney <laughs> i didn't do that on purpose <laughs> i what i have a tab open where it's written down and my eyes glance towards it to remind me what it was called uh, and this time i hadn't built towards it <laughs> damn it fantastic <laughs> you yeah. got what you wanted eventually <laughs> i knew if i just waited it would come out no obviously they're very different games but they both have that essence of you know just a rural painterly place to hang out in you know and that's that's what i'm enjoying about the game but like i said i just haven't been putting much time into games in general which is why i haven't finished what's probably a three to four hour game game is it yeah it's about that yeah, it's not, yeah no, it I doesn't hang around <laughs> probably next time i put it on i'll uh, i'll do it but in the complete opposite of that gentle little girl game let's talk about <laughs> was that a weird way to put that i think so but it's done now yeah um let's talk about our, our main topic which is you know very like laser focused topic but in a way kind of vague and broad i guess we're just talking about villains uh, in video games some of our favorite villains and i think there's a lot of kind of ways you can look at a villain kev isn't there are we looking at, look at it through a, a narrative sense yeah is this a well-written villain is it a well-written vid- villain in the sense that you know the character is three-dimensional and you know understandable and relatable or is it a, a villain that you know suits this narrative is it a goal to kind of you know work towards or I think a lot of times with games, and we talked about this when we talked about our favorite characters in games. Was that with you? Nope. Our favorite main Marcy. characters? No, that was Marcy. That's, that's the other one. It's the other one, yeah. Is that sometimes, you know, with games as well, there's just obviously the rule of cool, where yeah. I think sometimes your favorite villain can just be, you know, because it's a cool design. But um, we kind of, we're kind of we going to talk about that for a bit, and I think we want to kind of uh, roll into um, villains we don't quite like as well, just for a bit of variety. Is that, is that the story, Kev? Is it? I think that sounds good, yeah. So do you want to start with maybe... A favorite yeah. or something or do you have any um avenue you'd like to begin and be- begin with yeah well i think i suppose a good place to start as any is kind of looking at what makes a good villain uh-huh. and something you, you kind of touched on there where you know you have in sort of other media outside of games you only really have the writing to fall back on you know visual presentation in, in film and tv and stuff is there as well but like to make a villain work really it needs some kind of decent writing behind it you kind of need to know their motivation i suppose would be a big one mm-hmm. you need to know like why are they opposing the protagonist and you know you have to kind of be able to get into their mindset a bit you can kind of bonus points if you can like sympathize with their ideas but not their tactics that sort of thing you know yeah for sure um and i think video games can be really good at that at at putting you into a villain's shoes um sometimes literally there's the beauty of of <laughs> the medium you know i'm thinking of i think it, it, we didn't mention it during 
the superheroes episode or i don't know if we mentioned it during the um the game of the year episode but that section in the recent spider-man game um, oh i thought you were making a joke because you said sometimes literally and i thought you meant literally wearing shoes like some villainous shoes while you were playing a game no but and I, I was mean, waiting for the punchline but then you just started talking about the spider-man game yeah but i mean that that bit in the spider-man game it was unreal you, yeah where you play as venom it was it was a massive surprise i did i wasn't spoiled by it same oh, we, we're, we're spoiling that now yeah that's that's just no problem eh, fuck yeah it. exactly it's been, it's been out a couple of months yeah it was a small little section of the game but it was something i didn't know was in it and you know venom is He's everyone. He's everyone. Everyone's favorite fucking Marvel villain, or one of them. So it was, it was cool. It was very cool, and they put as much thought into how he should control as they did with um Spidey, you know, for the larger game. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose I think one thing they did well there is, um, making sure that we understood Harry's motivations going into it. The whole, you know, his desire to heal the world, and then how the Venom symbiote has twisted that into what the game ends up doing with it. Um, so it's from the point of view of establishing, you know, why the villain wants to do what it's doing. The game does a really good job of that. I've just realized that's probably quite spoiler heavy again, isn't it? Who cares? Okay. okay. <laughs> it's been out a couple of months now. We've talked about it twice on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know if, that, if that's like um, how it works, you know. Even if a game's been out for only two weeks, but we've talked about this the third time speaking about it now, so spoolers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's the how it works. The, it's the rule of threes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. what's cool is as soon as you're in, you're like, you, you play the whole game as um, Sp- um, Peter and Miles, you know, a couple of Spider-Men, and, you know, they're spider-webbing people to walls, you know, you're webbing people up onto girders and stuff like that, and as soon as you're in control of Venom, you kind of, after playing like 20 so hours of that game, your brain immediately is kind of shocked when you, like, go at a goon and, like, Venom, like, kills him kills him yeah just snaps him in <laughs> half like a fucking yeah. twig yeah and it's a nice little kind of um story moment through gameplay and you, you kind of realize that you're like oh right i'm i'm now murdering these men this I, i'm I'm a, I'm a character who kills now you know yeah for sure i think um another thing that makes a villain in my view anyway is for video games in particular the villain kind of needs to be present kind of throughout the story i think Mm-hmm. there's a thing that you can do in other media in in sort of in literature or in film or whatever where the villain can kind of be a malevolent presence in the background yeah and then there can be sort of a big reveal at the end for my view i don't think that works as well in video games i, th- I think to truly build up that sort of protagonist antagonist relationship with the villain they kind of need to be a presence throughout the game um wonder what your thoughts are on that do you think that the sort of the the late game reveal thing works or, or is your preference for a villain that you're constantly butting heads with well listen to this i have a kind of a way i think video games can pull this off okay and i have an example that's you know one of the most celebrated most popular one of the most talked about games of all time a game i will talk about at any given opportunity go for it we get ready for eye roll you know it's the it's the underrated the legend of zelda ocarina of time <laughs> Yeah, of course. Obviously, which is um I'm sure know, I'm sure some of our audience have heard of it. <laughs> Just Ganondorf is one of the most iconic villains of all time, right? Mm-hmm. And he's not in that game much. No. Now, this is the first Zelda game where he's a dwarf, where he's a Ganon and a dwarf. Mm-hmm. That basically his human name, so he was always a creature called Ganon in the previous games. This is the first time we get his origin story when he used to be a man. But that's not all really um that important. 
he's not in it much, Kev, right? But he's at, he's at two pivotal moments in the game, like for arguments. Like you do see a bit, you peek in through a window of Zelda and you'll see him up to no good. But um, he's in the midsection of the game where he tricks Link into opening the door of time and Ganondorf takes over the world. And then you you wake up seven years later and Ganondorf has been ruling the world for seven years. Oh no. Then obviously there's a climactic battle and you finally see him transform. But in that way there, you said that, you know, the big reveal at the end can be kind of disappointing and stuff like that. Yeah. Or it doesn't build up much. I would argue there's a way for a game to do it where playing the first chunk of that game in Hyrule, all vibrant and happy, and then suddenly being thrust into this, the seven years later Hyrule where Ganon, Ganondorf has taken over. Everything has gone to shit. There's zombies in the streets of the market town. Mm. You know, Zora's domain is frozen over. There's tr- a dragon in Death Mountain. All those changes, all those ways that the world has gone wrong kind of builds your kind of contempt towards Ganondorf. Yeah. He doesn't need to be around. He doesn't even need to be talked about that much. Just seeing the kind of fruitions of his evil deeds in places that you explored as a young child and now you're seeing kind of you know brought to their knees is a cool way to build up what is essentially a one-dimensional villain character-wise you know he's not complicated he's just evil for evil's sake i would argue zelda and other ones have sort of made him better you know a bit more three-dimensional maybe a little bit but he's still one of my favorite villains of all time because you know all you really need is to kind of the the you know He's demonstrably evil. You know, you can see the things he's done. It's not just this guy is the worst guy in the world. You gotta kill him, Link. It's no, this guy's the worst guy in the world. Look what he did to all the places you love. Look what it, look what he did to the citizens of Hyrule. And that just gives you more motivation in a what is essentially a very kind of not paper thin, but very basic plot line through gameplay, through exploring that world. Yeah. Both the story and both Ganondorf, I think, are given more dimension. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's it's a great example of, of that sort of thing. I think it is, even when he's not on screen, you're feeling his presence because it's being reflected back in how twisted the world has become. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's it's a great, uh, it's a great use of atmosphere in the game that they kind of, they, they build up the sense of, of, of Gandor's evil and, you know, Therefore, giving sort of Link's motivation of why he's pushing back against it, because as you said, this is this was the bright, happy town that he passed through as a child. Mm-hmm. Now seeing this sort of this twisted shadow of it, um, you know, it's very easy to see why Link would be motivated to get up and do something about it. You know, um, and it's always interesting to just see a villain win as well, even if it's halfway yeah. through the story. Absolutely, to see yeah. that the villain has teeth, to see that the villain really is a threat. You know, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I guess it's kind of a common thing in in JRPGs, but um, it's yeah. one of my one of my favorite uh, things that they can do. It works for me every time they do it. Is the um the sort of the, the mid game rug pull where the villain wins? <laughs> yeah, I first saw it in Final Fantasy VI, and yeah. it was a huge deal. Final Fantasy VI has a, a villain that's also somewhat one dimensional, but he's quite cool because he's mm-hmm. one-dimensional you almost don't want to like ruin him with a bit of character development he's just evil he's just, he, his name is kefka have you played you played six a bit kef have you i've played six i haven't finished it but yeah i'm, I'm very familiar with kefka though kefka is basically an evil clown he's a general for the evil the empire you're fighting against who's been experimenting on with magic and he's just a rotter like yeah he's just, he, his motivation is basically just nihilism he's kind of like yeah, yeah there's no point to anything so i might as well end everything 
that's exactly it yeah and he and he's he, he's just kind of he's just kind of an evil dope for most of the game but he does like very evil things and which is another mm-hmm. kind of like what i just said with ganondorf there it's nice to see it being done like one of the main characters um backstories uh, cyan is that his wife and daughter were killed in a village that kefka poisoned the water supply and he killed the whole village like you see him do genuine <laughs> evil stuff and his yeah. fingerprints are all over like some bad shit that goes on during the game but then in the second act of that game at the end of the second act of that game where he wins and a, a year passes he just he becomes just this kind of yeah nihilistic magical emperor thing and he's not even in that final third kev yeah. He's just, he's not you don't need to run into him again. You don't not, nothing really needs to be said about him anymore. It's just the same with High Rule 7 years later. It's seeing the kind of horrifying world. I think that works in that works in a book. No problem. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The, the the rug pull, the the villain winning and the the heroes having to kind of rally themselves yeah. together again. But it just works excellently for a, a, a interactive medium because you just get to explore that ruined space and the kind of see the kind of the, the the bad guy's handiwork it's very comparable to the ocarina of time but i've always liked kefka and also they gave him a really cool musical theme and a very snes era sound effect where he has he actually has a, an iconic laugh he goes <laughs> yeah, the, yeah that's all you need back in the, in the yeah. 90s really to make a good villain yeah um it, in, uh, a fact that'll be interesting to almost no one but um <laughs> the, there's a weekly D game that i play in and yeah. just this last weekend we fought a sort of a boss that we've been squaring up for for about three actual real world years, <laughs> and um, the DM used uh, "Dancing Mad" from the Final Fantasy VI soundtrack. Yes, soundtrack the boss fight, and it was fucking class. Yes, that sounds amazing. Is your D- is your DM a big Final Fantasy nerd? Not really. I think he's just a big boss team nerd, though. Big. Well, that's that's absolutely fine as well. You know, I I won't tell anyone um, except for people who listen to this podcast. But I listen to boss themes from video games i haven't even played <laughs> so yeah for sure it's more the energy <laughs> it's more the, the climactic energy of it all but dancing mad is off the i was gonna say it's the best boss theme ever made for a video game but i, I might just be a traditionalist and say it's one winged angel from seven yeah but dancing mad it was, dancing mad was a kind of big ostentatious um final fantasy final boss thing first before <laughs> one winged angel did it but we're going way off track now <laughs> Yeah, um, so I suppose, having danced around it a bit, do you have, we've mentioned a couple of, of great ones already, but do you have a, a villain in mind who you'd consider your favourite? Yeah, I don't, favourite, favourite, um, favourite, favourite, I just do not know. I couldn't land, I, I landed on my least favourite, no problem. Okay. Um, but I couldn't land on a favourite, favourite, so I kind of instead just came up with a couple of, a couple of ones, is that alright? Yeah, absolutely. Quick fire round. I think before I get in, before I get into the one or ones actually, it's two that I chose because I think they're like just very well written. Just that kind of that rule of cool, Kev. Yeah, Albert Wesker. <laughs> That's <laughs> kind of a great shout. It's it's a villain that absolutely does not work in any other medium <laughs> other than video. That's exactly no, but no. You could just say that's a villain that just does not work in any way. Anyway, and I would, be, I would yeah. be perfectly happy with that. He's emblematic of the absolute stupid silliness of the Resident Evil franchise, and I love him so much. He's a sunglasses wearing Matrix vampire who doesn't die, and he keeps coming back game after game. And he's and he's his evil schemes are like total oh. global saturation. <laughs> exactly, and he is he is my choice for just like. You don't need depth. You don't need, you know, a 
car- a really good character. I, I, I'm sure some Resident Evil fans out there think he's like a really well-developed character because he does have reams and reams of backstory lore. But he just makes me laugh and he makes me <laughs> smile. Yeah. Years ago when you and I were playing and we played through the, the franchise together, um, he pops back up in the underplayed Code Veronica. He yeah. hasn't been in he hasn't been in it since the original. And this game was released in 1999, so it was around the time of the Matrix. Yeah. And suddenly he has red eyes and a trench coat and he's matrixing around the place doing bullet dodges. And it makes me so happy. In yeah. Resident Evil 5, you kick him into a volcano and shoot him with two rocket launchers. It's like I don't really have much to say about him except that he just makes me happy. I think he's the silliest goddamn even in the original resident evil kev yeah he's he's your leader but he's also secretly working for umbrella he's a secret scientist when you when you find the revelatory photo of him being a part of the umbrella science team he's still wearing his sunglasses yeah in a lab coat it's stuff like that is why i love him and and in the original dubbing as well uh (laughs) he's just like uh if you're if you're playing as chris and you get to the end he's he's just like behold the ultimate life form tyrant and chris just starts laughing at him and he's just like, and wesker sounds so hurt he's like he's like chris stop it like, wesker you are pitiful it's brilliant yeah. it's my favorite it's my favorite he's he's no I, I changed my mind he's the only one i'm choosing for my favorite yeah i think that's, that's absolutely perfect i do have a couple more can i just keep going to stay in that kind of wavelength for sure yeah this kind of mixes it because He's ex- He's brilliantly written, actually. He's a really great villain. But he also has that thing. He makes me laugh. He's from a very Japanese game. And uh, he makes, just makes me smile. But he is actually brilliantly, brilliantly written. But I want to extend it to his whole team of goons. Okay. I can't talk about villains without talking about um, the Foxhound terrorist from the original Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, absolutely. Liqu- yeah. Liquid Snake and his group. Yeah, 100%. Liquid Snake might actually be my favorite video game villain of all time. Just, it's... It's everything. It's like his, he has such a chip on his shoulder. He's that, that, it, that, that, it turns out that's a lot of his motivation. It's just like, ah, oh, you know, I found out years ago that I was a clone of our dad. You're just finding out now. And also snake, you're the better clone and I'm the shit clone. So I'm just going to, I'm going to steal some nuclear weapons because I'm angry. Yeah. <laughs> but all just... that with a British accent. And then, of course, with the, like the rule of cool thing, I keep bringing up like, what's cooler than the group of villains from Metal Gear Solid One? They're every single one of them is an absolute knockout of design. Just Psycho Mantis, Sniper Wolf, Vulcan Raven, um, Ocelot. Obviously, they're just iconic characters. Immediately iconic. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's it's pretty much everything with them. It's the the character design it's the the actual boss fights themselves it's the the little bits of the backstory you get for each character as you go through it it's all just it's something that kojima does so well and like has done it in his other games as well but i do think probably metal gear one is where he nailed the team the best i, I wouldn't argue with anyone who said three um yeah. but personally i would prefer one i think um is it four What's the team the in be- four again? The Beauty and the Beast squad. The Beauty, yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't played four. It's it's my the gaping hole in my Metal Gear knowledge. But I found out from listening to the Hey Look Listen podcast episode about it <laughs> that um, you're saying that like the the backstory for the characters is is revealed after you kill them. Yeah, by another guy. Yeah, by Drebin, the guy who sells you weapons in the game. He, he calls you up in Codec and he's like, "Killed another Beauty and the Beast squad, huh? And what a 
tragic beauty she was. She was 14 when her village was attacked. And it just goes <laughs> on from there and, and you're listening. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, doesn't exactly establish stakes in the same way that um, Metal Gear 1 does. I don't know if it's because we played it when we were so young as well, but I just remember thinking, you know, the likes of Psycho Mantis, Sniper Wolf and Vulcan Raven were pretty well developed. You know, definitely um, Revolver Ocelot over the whole series is very well developed. He's the ultimate yeah, for sure. triple crossing spy. You don't, you never know whose side he's on. Turns out he might be all along. He might have been good all along, but also Nano Machines. <laughs> and obviously Liquid Snake survives in an arm. It's all mm. very good stuff. It's all very good stuff. But I just, I, he's voiced by Cam Clark, who's a, a a voice actor I've always loved. He, he mm-hmm. did Leonardo in the original um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and stuff like that. And he was in a game called Killer7. Um, really, like, he, he pops up all over the place. He has a really distinctive voice. Um, uh, for me, Liquid Snake is his ultimate um, piece of work. I just think he's so kind of over the top yet. It is kind of mustache twirling villainy. Yeah. But I don't know if it's combined with the reams and reams of dialogue that Kojima writes for him. He, he never comes across as, he sort of, he comes across as human and mustache villainy at the same time. Yeah, I think he actually is a great example of a villain that does both of the things that we were talking about earlier on. Yeah. In yeah, that sure. he is present throughout the story. And then there's also a rug pull reveal with him as well. Well, he's your buddy Master Miller was actually him in disguise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's he's been taunting you in disguise the whole time. I mean, <laughs> the, the... <laughs> I mean, as a child, I was genuinely shocked by the reveal. I just have more love for Liquid Snake because Master Miller was only ever calling you up over codec, over radio. Yeah. But it's revealed that he was, you know, in disguise, wearing with his hair up and wearing sunglasses. Yeah, I just love the fact that you know Liquid Snake is sitting in another part of the facility the whole time. He's like, all right, I gotta go. Okay, Ocelot, leave me alone. I need to. Snake's calling me up for some advice about rats and in, in air ducts. I need to pretend to be Master Miller, and yeah. he's like, okay, get out of here. I'm putting on my costume. He's got fucking <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis himself into character every time. <laughs> and then at the end of it, when when it's revealed, he's like, like my sunglasses, Snake. And I always really wanted to add a line in there when Snake was just like, what? What do you, what do you mean? Because he's never seen him wearing sunglasses. <laughs> So it's good stuff, but we're still very much. I feel like all I've managed to conjure so far on this topic is kind of villains I loved as kids from very kind of campy Japanese games and JRPGs and stuff like that. Do you have anything uh, more real than that, or is that where we're landing? Yeah, no, I, I can I can go for something a bit more real than that. Yeah, so yeah. Um, my favorite villain of all time is mm-hmm. uh, from a campy JRPG called Final yes. Fantasy VII. <laughs> Oh man! See, we were originally planning on doing this with more of us. We could the schedule wouldn't work. Well, I think maybe Marcy would add a more variety. Now we're just talking about like our <laughs> our favorite franchise. It's just Final Fantasy, Metal Gear, and Resident Evil, isn't it? For the whole basically, episode. yeah. So essentially, the same as every other episode. In saying that, though, Kev, now that you've vocalized that thought, you can't argue with Sephiroth. Is that who you're choosing? Is it Sephiroth? No. <gasps> Shock! Fuck my ass! I am shocked. Yeah. Go for it. So, um, I was actually picking. Drumroll, please. Rufus. 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 And kind and kind of Shinra in general, the Shinra Corporation, as as represented by Rufus. Like he's not. He's obviously he's not the primary antagonist in the story, but he is definitely my favorite villain in it. Both in terms of like his own presence and influence within the story, but also kind of what he and by extension Shinra represent. You know, Shinra are like the ultimate like evil corporation, capital E, capital C. You know, they're 
textbook baddies. They're um, they're kind of like a, a perfect allegory for like present day existential fears. You know, like the, in terms of like the military industrial complex, they're literally a private company that have their own fucking standing army and have fought wars around the planet. Um, in terms of political corruption, like they fully control the mayor's office. The mayor himself is, I think he describes himself as like a librarian working mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like, you want climate change? Oh baby, these guys will give you climate change. They're, <laughs> that's their whole MO. That's their whole every, thing. Every, they, they began with that and everything else stemmed from that. Yeah, they're, like they're, they're an electric company. They're a power company that's literally like draining the lifeblood of the planet and turning it into electricity. So if you want real world fears, Shinra's got them covered. Um, sort of early in the game, the company is led by Rufus's dad, President Shinra. Shinra, um, Shinra. Shinra, Shinra. Is his first name Shinra? Surely not. No idea. I've never thought about it just right now. I don't know why I was so willing to believe you there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not as daft as half of the other shit in the game, so why not? <laughs> so yeah, uh, Shinra J. Shinra, the president mm-hmm. of the Shinra Corporation. Um, as he's presented, particularly the way he's presented in the original game, he's kind of like old school, lazy, casual corruption. Kind of like a like a stereotypical fat cat, a fat, opulent man in this big, like red burgundy suit. Like, you can see him in a brothel. Yeah, if you, if you stare through a, a keyhole. Although exactly. Charles me did not understand what I was looking at. Yeah, he he looks like the type of chap who, if he found himself in late eighteenth century France, would very <laughs> quickly have a date with a guillotine. <laughs> he would he would not hang around long. Um, but he he kind of he represents a very sort of banal but very normal sort of capitalist evil in that he's just he's kind of interested in maintaining the status quo he's interested in maintaining power um but then you know due to plot reasons whatever early enough in the game his son rufus takes over and he's like he's young and he's thin and he's stylish and he's energetic and like his cruelty is anything but lazy and casual this guy is like actively enjoys being evil and he like he went well, as soon as he takes over he starts like governing straight from the fucking the, the fascist playbook you know there's big parades there's big like military yeah. displays of power he's like calling for public execution of dissenters like it's it's fascism 101 um so kind of he works for me as a villain on like three big levels there's like a he represents kind of the worst traits of of unchecked corporate capitalist greed b He's fucking cool. Like, have you seen that character art? My guy is wearing two jackets. He has a white <laughs> trench coat inside a white blazer. You can't argue. You can't argue with that. You absolutely he a, cannot. He wheels a shotgun. Yeah, he has a shotgun. He has a shotgun and a dog, and he's wearing two jackets of different lengths. <laughs> and the longer jacket is inside. You cannot argue with that. And then, like in a game that has like. You mentioned Sephiroth and uh, Genova and like mm-hmm. aliens and meteors and yes. planet-spanning ecological disasters and conflict and all that. None of that plot happens without the actions of the Shinra company. Like, from a plot point of view, they are the, sort of the, the instigating force behind all of it. And Rufus, to me, is kind of the best personification of the evils of that company. Mm-hmm. So while like Sephiroth got the better theme song and you know in all the spin-off media has become the more iconic one for me at least rufus is kind of the defining villain of that game um even if he gets scrunked off camera by weapon um, he's also, he, he, he's both it's both not off camera and he doesn't actually eventually be scrunked if you if you're into the expanded universe 
Oh, I mean, what is it? Some fucking Dirge of Cerberus shit? No, he's in Advent Children, the movie. I've seen that. that he's absolutely is... in that. He's in yeah. a wheelchair. Okay. <laughs> As I completely left your memory, yeah? Absolutely, yes. Rufus in a wheelchair. I don't know, is he still a dickhead? No, that's what I was going to ask you, because you did such a good, and painted such a good picture there. They, the expanded universe kind of worked on giving him a redemptive arc. How do you think of that? What do you think of that? I think that's kind of bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> well, nothing really good narratively came from the expanded universe thus far, <laughs> to, to be perfectly honest with you, the expanded Final Fantasy VII universe. Yeah, so what, what was the, the attempt at a redemption arc? Was he just like, I, I've realized that greed is wrong and now I want to go hug some trees? Yeah, he's helping out. Oh man, this is hard. What are we doing with Advent Children? He's helping out. He ends up helping out Cloud and the lads. He's hiding Genova cells, I believe. And he's like, stay away, little Sephiroth. That movie was batshit. Yeah, I, I'm beginning to realize that I don't really remember anything about Advent Children except the, the going up bit. That's. Yes, like the best part. The best part. Um, it's maybe the only good part. I don't know. Yeah. But here's the thing, Kev. My least favorite villain um, is not only from Final Fantasy, it's from Final Fantasy VII. So can I just barrel ahead with that? Oh, please. And I have no... Because um, I absolutely loved what you said there about Shinra. Because I didn't even think of Shinra, but like to kind of um, use Rufus as an emblem of it all. But of course, like Shinra is like the iconic evil empire. Even though they're not like an evil empire in the classic sense, you get a lot of RPGs. You know, they're, 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 the, they're the ones we grew up with, aren't they? Yeah, well, they're kind of... They're, they're that evil corporation empire kind of in the style of like the, the East India Trading Company and things that yeah, yeah. they kind of serve a, a slightly different niche to like the, the empire empire of like your, your Star Wars fame or something. They're all evil dickheads, but these ones are more, I don't know, greed motivated than just power motivated. Yeah. Well, I played uh, the prequel to Final Fantasy VII this year for the first time, Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII, okay. starring J- Japan's favorite Final Fantasy character ever, Zack. Yep. And that it has its own villain. Okay, I kind of, yeah, I never really thought about it. I assumed it must, but. So, um, Zack's backstory is very much wrapped up in the backstory of Sephiroth, the main villain of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. But since in back in Zack's timeline, Sephiroth is sort of a good guy. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't had his, his, you know, his shocking revelation of his past and all that yet. They couldn't really rely on him to be the villain, mm-hmm. which is fine. Because what you want from a prequel is you you want to see the characters of, you know, five years before, you know? Yeah. And that's one of the best things about it is seeing kind of young Cloud in in, in Shinra security, you know, being just kind of a young, shy little soldier boy. And you get to see Sephiroth back when he was a cool, beloved war hero. I, I, these are the things I like about the game. Yeah. But in kind of coming up with a villain to service this story, since <laughs> since their they're, they're villain they definitely wanted to use is, you know, not evil yet. They were. Just, they couldn't think of anything. They couldn't come up with anything. Instead of, um, how about another soldier has Genova cells? Okay. That's what they came up with. It's really irritating. One thing I hate about prequels is when it adds to the lore, mm. but instead of you know expanding and coloring in more of the lore, it actually just makes it messier. Yeah. So now there's this whole thing, but before Sephiroth, there was another scientist who's not. I'm sorry for people who don't know the ins and outs of the Final Fantasy VII lore, but. But strapping, we're going there. Sephiroth was experimented on by um, when he was still in his mother's womb. Cells were injected into him from an ancient uh, space entity called Genova by a scientist called Hojo. Um, Hojo was his biological father. Yada, yada. Another scientist was kind of doing the same thing with two other lads, Kev. 
he was just kind of doing the same thing, except instead of injecting this straight into a womb, which is now the in-canon universe, universe explanation of why Sephiroth is super powerful because it was the, it was the womb thing. Okay. Two other lads, two other lads, it was done to them when they were babies. And they both grew up to be um, Zach's mentor, who he, who, who he gets the Buster Sword off of, okay. is one of them, and the other one is the new villain of Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. The worst JRPG name you'll ever hear, Kev. His name is Genesis Rhapsodus. Yep. <laughs> yeah. and that sounds about right. I absolutely I hated both these characters. Um, Zach's mentor character is the writing in Crisis Core is pretty ropey. It really like I hate to be that guy. It really works best when you have legacy characters in it. When you have your Aerith and you have your Cloud, you have your Sephiroth. Yeah. And Zach himself is very good, but the two characters are like all shite. Genesis, you, you, I've never hated a villain more um, playing a video game, and not because you know his villainous antics. Antics, just every time he walked onto screen, he sucked the energy out of me. He's this red-coated anime boy who's other than Sephiroth, who's basically supposed to be the strongest soldier ever, but he carries around this like you know, Loveless Kevin in the Final Fantasy VII universe. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a popular play. Yeah, Crisis Core ruins it by oh, no. having <laughs> Genesis carry around a book of, of and he quotes it constantly. So he's like constantly quoting this kind of shit poetry at you, Ugh. like really badly written shit poetry. And he just like, he just won't die as well. Sorry to spoil it. <laughs> I, didn't know where, I didn't know where to go with it. He will not die. He just, he keeps surviving moments. He, he invades scenes from, the fan, from Final Fantasy VII. So you get a cool flashback from Final Fantasy VII. Um, in Crisis Core, you're like, oh, you get to see this from another perspective now, you know? You, you, you get to play this on the PlayStation 997, but now we have a kind of a done-up version of it. But yeah. then the scene goes on slightly longer, and it turns out, oh, Genesis was there too, and it just feels wrong. Oh, it's God. like, get out of this iconic scene from Final Fantasy VII, Genesis. You're not what? allowed here. They're just gumping him into the scenes. He was there at Nibelheim as well. In the, in the reactor. In, in the reactor, yeah, in the important reactors and stuff. It's Oh, it's a nightmare. God. And I don't really have much more to say about him other than to rant about him and just say that you kill him at the end of it but then he's i he opens up his eyes and two mysterious guys in cloaks carry him onto a helicopter presumably for more final fantasy 7 antics and i couldn't have been more upset to not see that man die <laughs> I, I can't i i, I <laughs> it's hard to kind of emphasize what's so wrong with him without you actually just seeing the cutscenes he's in he, he's just the most unlikable um badly written character ever and i'm just so worried because I played the Yuffie DLC of yeah. Final Fantasy VII recently, and uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake, I should say, and it's putting in some elements from the expanded universe. There's characters from Crisis, not Crisis Core, from Dirge of Cerberus, of all things. Okay. You know, the, the Vincent starring third-person shooter that came out there in 2006, which is the worst thing that's ever come out of the Final Fantasy VII universe by far. And they're, they're putting characters from that into it, and I'm just still terrified that they're waiting to pull a trigger on Genesis and he's going to pop up in these remakes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the, the main reason he's my favorite he's my least favorite villain is because maybe it makes him the best villain because i'm still genuinely scared of him yeah he's, he's just have that that dread hanging <laughs> over you for like how long is it going to take them to finish this final fantasy 7 remake series exactly. it's another 10 years of you just living in constant fear that genesis is going to rear his head again and i wouldn't have thought they'd put him in except for like the lads and the lads who are in um, the yuffie dlc and they're not they don't invade it too much they're kind of it, it, if you're going to use them the way they use them is absolutely fine. Yeah. One of them is actually just an optional boss more than anything. Uh, absolutely fine. But 
the way they re-released Crisis Core on purpose because I think Zack is going to have a huge, huge part to play in this uh, in this remake universe. And I'm just so scared that, that Genesis will be there along for the ride as well. <laughs> it's going to be my least favorite choice they make if he pops up. Yeah. And if you eventually play Crisis Core before um, Remake 2 comes out or Rebirth comes out. I was gonna. No, you still should. It's actually an enjoyable game and it's like 15 hours long, so it doesn't take up too much of your time. But also, you should play it because I can have a brother in arms who I can absolutely, I know you're going to hate Genesis. Yeah, if, if it shows up on, on Game Pass or on PS Plus, I'll play it in a heartbeat. I don't know, after your, your not-so-glowing review, I don't know if I want to drop 40 or 50 bucks on it. Yeah, it wasn't worth the money I um I spent on it, but I did it. I did. Did I like it? <laughs> <laughs> I think I liked it. I like parts of it. Yeah, so I suppose um, to dwell in negativity for a little bit, I have mm-hmm. a, a, a least favorite villain character mm-hmm. that I don't know if you're going to agree with me on. Oh, are you trying to add a bit of drama? Not a bit of drama. Not a bit of drama, really. It's just it's it's a villain that I I like. I hated when I first came across him, and still hate to this day. And that is um, Doctor Robotnik. <laughs> Why? I just can't fucking stand him. I don't know. I don't know. I think I don't know. As a child, was I was I afraid of him and channeled that into hatred instead Ooh. or something? I don't know what it was. His big stupid fucking face but I, I just I hated him I hated when he showed up in the Sonic games I hated him and he showed I, up after every level at the end of every level end, didn't he? end of every level yeah. you gotta fight, yeah, to him, fight him fight him again and like your friend Genesis he just won't stay fucking down yeah that's right Um, but yeah I just like we anytime we've mentioned Sonic on this podcast it's usually been <laughs> I thought you were gonna say it's it's you no I mean <laughs> I, I mean say there also yes but no <laughs> No, it's usually been like the first three are really good. Anything after that can get in the bin. Um, So I don't know how the character is sort of developed within the canon of the the series as it goes. And and fundamentally, and I do need to make this clear, I do not care. Just in in case anyone is listening and was like, I'm going to send a little synopsis into the Hey Look Listen socials. Please don't. You can print it out on paper, staple it together and put it in just any bin. Um, but yeah, so I don't I don't know anything about Dr. Robotnik as a character. I fundamentally don't care about Dr. Robotnik as a character. I hate his stupid fucking face. And then this all culminates in seeing that first trailer for the first Sonic movie. And, oh, and, the, the Jim Carrey version. And seeing Jim Carrey as Dr. Robotnik and going, oh. yeah, that makes sense. That That's appropriate casting because I cannot fucking stand Jim Carrey either. Well, yeah, I was going to say for, for Hey Look listeners and even fellow hey look listen podcasters marcy and owen might not know this yeah kev does not like jim carrey i've known this about you for a long time i cannot stand him i cannot stand the man <laughs> cannot sanction his buffoonery no like i don't like obviously i haven't watched the movie because you know life's too short i <laughs> gotta spend like four hours on my phone playing marvel snap instead but um <laughs> but just even from the trailer it just looks like it, it's an entire movie yet another entire movie of jim carrey just chewing the scenery like no one on set has the balls to tell him to rein it in and that combined with my pre-existing decades-long hatred of the character, I was like, no, even if this thing is a fucking 10 out of 10, I'm still not going to watch it. You've seen at least the first one, haven't you? Yeah, well, we did an episode on um, movie adaptations in our first year of this podcast. So it's one of our old ones now. And I did talk about the Sonic movie then, and I did admit that I don't hate Jim Carrey the way you do. I, I yeah. dig on um, Truman Show, Eternal Sunshine. 
Yeah, I'll fuck okay, with I'm man enough to concede that the two of those are decent movies. Name a third one. Dumb and, Dumb and Dumber? Nah, no? dog shit. Nah. Fair enough. We won't get into it. We won't get into it, but I will admit that, I did Cable not. Guy? Dog shit. Oh, yeah, Cable Guy's all right. Yeah. Nah, nah. nah. Shit movie. Fair enough. Bad taste. Uh, directed by Ben Siller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he'd know a shit movie if he saw one. <laughs> but I remember really, really not liking um, Jim Carrey in the Sonic movie. It, Felt like they were so enamored with having him. Yeah, that and it was like a, an inexperienced director who didn't have the fucking balls to like stop him ad libbing and you know courses for courses, you know different strokes for different folks. But you know your mileage may vary. Another phrase, but <laughs> I didn't find him funny at all in that movie, and I found him grating, absolutely grating. But I like video game Robotnik though. At least my my versions of him from the old games, you know? Because I just like, he's just this ridiculous scientist with a big mustache who makes death machines to kill a single hedgehog. And in terms of villains getting away with their villainous plots, he's, I don't know what his story is like, but he's turned so many animals into robots. Yeah. What a, That's what a wrong in. What a wrong in, yeah. <laughs> what an absolute prick. Yeah. I like, I like in the age of kind of when villains were classically you know capturing princesses and stuff like that he was just like no i'm just going to destroy nature turn animals into robots i think i'm kind of like having a sort of a therapy-esque revelation mid podcast <laughs> but i think that's what bothered me is the turning things into robots because i was really fucking the only no one of two movies that i've walked out of in the cinema was as a child watching star trek first contact and just mm-hmm. like not being able to handle the Borg at all. Oh, right, so I think yeah. there's something about the the sort of the machinery biology interface thing that just did not sit right with me as a kid at all. Because I fucking which was, hate it. Go on. Which, which started it? Which made you scared? Um, did, did Robotnik make you afraid of the Borg or did the Borg make you afraid of Rob- or hate Robotnik? I don't know. It's These a, are the questions. It, it's a chicken and metallic egg <laughs> situation. I, I, can't, I don't remember. Presumably I would have played Sonic first, surely. Although I don't, I don't remember what the order thing is. I feel like I was definitely too young watching First Contact, but I'm worried to go back and check the release date and be like, no man, that came out in 2004. It's like, oh no. Would you would you watch would you watch a crossover where, oh no, um, the Enterprise has been taken over by the Borg and it's Picard, it's Worf, it's all the lads, but they're outnumbered. What's that? It's Sonic the Hedgehog. He's come through the transporter. Miles O'Brien has has got him in from his world and he's here to help that'd be a good movie wouldn't it i mean that would just get us one step closer to sonic <laughs> slash seven of nine um fiction <laughs> and who might argue with that oh you can only dream i wonder if anyone's done that it's a star trek sonic slash fiction i mean a quick google will give you the answer but i can tell you right now it's probably yes all i'm gonna say is i'm not gonna check right now but between now and recording our next episode, I might check. And if it does exist, maybe that'll be our next topic. Fantastic. Yeah. Sign me up. In terms of, um, I just want to, I just want to do a little bit of a litmus test here in terms of, you know, sure. is this personal towards Robotnik? Because I'm thinking around the same time, a bit later, you know, around nineties, mm-hmm. like, how do you feel about the very comparable Dr. Neo Cortex from Crash Bandicoot? Yeah, no Another hatred. mad scientist goober. Another know? mad scientist goober, but no hatred towards Cortex. I always found him so it entertaining. Is, it is. Yeah. It is something to do with it. You just hate Robotnik. And how do you feel about the fact that his canonical name in Japan is Eggman, and he's been called Eggman ever since the Dreamcast era? That's actually more endearing, if anything. Yeah, Robotnik was a creation of the localization team. Really? So 
Yeah, so when all those Mega Drive ones were translated, uh, they, it became Robotnik, and that, that also bled into the, the 90s cartoons. But he's always been Eggman in Japan, and they finally started doing that. I, I first time I ever saw it anyway was Sonic Adventure in the Dreamcast, and suddenly they were calling him Eggman. Although they did ease you into it, mm. he was like, "I'm Doctor Robotnik," and then Sonic is like, "Whatever, Eggman." And then from then on, he, everyone just called him Eggman, and Robotnik never complained about it. Okay, and in the movie, is he Eggman? No. All right. <laughs> now do you say that? <laughs> I do think Sonic does call him that. I think they use the same gambit that Sonic Adventure uses. Yeah, I think they, I think they do call him. Uh, Sonic goes, "Ah, you fucking Eggman." He doesn't swear. He should. That would be. That would be. He should. He definitely swears in the slash flick anyway. <laughs> well, I'll find out. I like obviously there's Sonic slash flick to find. I'm only looking for the Star Trek stuff. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Okay. We have a bit of class here. Hey, look, listen. I have one that's mildly serious. Ooh. I'm a big fan of... I'm, I've chosen two of these characters from the same game. They're both villains. Um, first one, I just think he is one of the best versions of just an absolute contemptible character. Okay. And I think that's absolutely fine sometimes. Just create a character that's so easy to hate that he's with you for the entire game. You just want to punch him slash shoot him with your cowboy gun. Yep. I'm going to a game you love called Red Dead Redemption 2. All right. And I'm talking about the character of Micah. Yeah. Fair. Who's just, you know, he's a part of your, your team. You're all this kind of family of misfits, but he's the one that, you know, he's a new enough recruit at the start of the game. He's very, you can tell he's big for his breaches. He has ideas. He's cozying up the Dutch, the leader. You can just tell he's never quite fits in. He's just that. He's that cunt in the group. When, when a couple of groups come together for a night out or something like that, and one person is just a toxic presence. That's Micah. <laughs> Yeah, he's yeah he's he's immediately <laughs> hateable, and to the point where you feel like, I, or I felt at least like that maybe there was going to be some kind of redemption arc no, or something. They double but, down. They no. they really lean into it. He's just an awful character, and he's the he's the source of a lot of the problems that Arthur Morgan runs into in that game. You know, he's just mm-hmm. both you know utterly like um, lacking in like morals or empathy just an out and out murderer a monster but he's also just like a snake and he's a kind of a manipulator he's just a well-written villain if i think of just well-written hateable villain in a video game it's micah yeah but i wanted to say dutch as well from the same game which is a slightly different thing because i think i've heard a bit more negativity about dutch maybe but dutch is perfect because that whole game is about like i said it's about this family this kind of found Mm. family of of brigands and cowboys and criminals you know they're all kind of villains in their own way in that cup you know none of them are really good people yeah. you know they're all outlaws they vary you know i think arthur morgan has a good soul but he's still kind of you know a criminal he's still he's still an air he's, yeah. he's still yeah. doing well on an air basis but dutch is you know dutch is the reason everyone's together and if you fall in love with that fan family like i did in that game you start blaming dutch for falling apart because he's the reason everyone's yeah. together. And like Dutch is revealed as it goes on to like, yeah, I'm sure he does, you know, have a, a certain type of affection for this little family that he's gathered. But he's just more obsessed with his own power, his own success, his own revenge towards people who wronged him to the point yeah. where he'll kind of sacrifice everything, you know, for his own needs. He'll fuck everything up for his own wants and his own needs. And I think Marcy described the game one time like, in the sense he was describing it as being like way too long. And he just described mm. it as it's constantly just Dutch 
you know, fucking things up <laughs> and having to deal with that, which is true. And that that is a that is a a, a, criti- a criticism in the sense that you know the the story of Red Dead Redemption Two feels a bit bloated and overlong, but it's a yeah. good arc to kind of um for a game to see this kind of wonderful kind of band of of characters fall apart. And for me, what Dutch is emblematic of that, and it's why you know by the end of that game, you, I hate him. You know, I absolutely hate him. Hmm. And it's almost even worse knowing that he's going to survive to the end of it because he's still alive in Red, Red, Red Dead Redemption 1, which is set after it, you know? Yeah. And he's not a bad villain in Red Dead 1 either. Like, he's right there to, you know, for him and John Marston to shoot, you know, their their separate philosophies back at each other, you know? <laughs> towards the end yeah. of the game, towards the climax. That absolutely works for that game. But it's, it's, it's two where I think he's a really, really, really good villain who I truly hated by the end of it absolutely hated him yeah absolutely it's it's a testament to the writing in the game that um even though like i've i've ranted many times about my issues with that game my issues have never been with the characters of the writing like they're they've always been excellent um they're really really uh like engaging and really drag you in i've always maintained that it would it's a better hbo series than it is a game sure um and like and dutch is is a big part of that um, I have never thought of him as a villain, which is weird when you spell it out. Like, but I guess it's weird. Maybe I, just, I think he's definitely the villain of that narrative in in, in terms of his diametric. He or at least he ends up being diametrically opposed to Arthur Morgan, your player. But they're all kind of bad guys, aren't they? They're all kind of criminals. Yeah. But I still count him as a villain of that narrative. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair. I just I, I've just thought of him more of as a yeah, <laughs> yeah, true that. Okay, what do you think of the notion of? Um, villain main characters do you have any of that do you have any, uh, any any example of maybe a main character who you play as who is villainous oh that's interesting um i have i mainly have anti-heroes in my head yeah i suppose there's the, the one that sprung immediately to mind is shadow of the colossus yes that's one of the ones i had as well yeah okay <laughs> no to, no i know no, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm just saying that's one i thought of like you know yeah yeah, I think in Shadow of the Colossus, your character definitely doesn't see themselves as the villain. Um, they are just trying to, you know, bring back a loved one, and they'll do pretty much anything to get that done. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, by the the end of the game, it's pretty obvious that you're not a good, not a not the good guy in this story. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. Can you think of an example where? You just you're playing as a villain start to finish rather than something that sort of gradually becomes apparent like that. One. It's not as interesting, is it? You know, I, like isn't it really the sense in all things that you know a really well written villain would never think of themselves as a villain because that's true to life. You know, yeah. a bad person people don't think of themselves as bad. You know, and I think that's that's more interesting and that's it, it's more like the revelation that you've been kind of playing as a villainous character, if not a villainous character, someone you might not morally mm-hmm. agree with. I think both Last of Us games are very good at that. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You know, obviously, it's been debated around the internet to the point of utter tedium, but I kind of fall on the, the side of things as not quite agreeing with Joel and what he did, while absolutely understanding and empathizing with why he, why he did everything. Mm. And I think that's that, that makes yeah. him from from like just to use the word villain because that's what we're doing this episode on. That makes him a good villain, or at least um, an anti-hero. And obviously the same it's the same with Ellie and Abby in the second one. Yeah, I think with Joel in particular, like his motivation is like incredibly obvious. Like the, the the opening scene of the game determines years in advance in in narrative and hours in advance in gameplay. 
Joel was only ever going to react in one way when put in that situation. You know, if, if he, when he loses his daughter, he, he ends up in a situation where he has this sort of found daughter figure. He's not going to let her go, regardless of the cost. But the cost in this case is so huge. It's, it's you know, a potential end to this whole situation, a potential, you know, cure for this whole zombie plague thing. So, like, the while his, his decision is definitely understandable, like, the, the selfishness involved is, you know, it's hard to see that as anything other than uh, the act of a villain. He's, he's done what Kefka wanted to do, and he's, he's doomed <laughs> the entire world, yeah, you know? Yeah. I guess the only other one I can kind of think of as well as Kratos, but less so the new ones and more so the, the old PS, PS2 and PS3 one. They yeah. do put him on a path of redemption and a path of, you know, doing heroic things and defeating what are essentially evil characters. But he's also, you know, you can rip up, you know, screaming, running people for health, you know. They very much, like, lean yeah. into the fact that Kratos was an awful bastard and they constantly have him yeah, killing people, you know, ironically or unironically in order to progress in that game. It was very edgy to mid-2000s, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's he's an unrepentant butcher yeah. <laughs> in those games. Um, that's a lot of why they're fun. But yeah, he's and and I I, I think I would think that the, the people of that world would see him <laughs> as a force of great evil. Yeah, and I do think they were successful in making the second two games, the second era of the of the games, which should say like um, God of War twenty eighteen and Ragnarok. I think they're successful in giving him a bit of a redemption and character growth. But I do think they always tried to do that and were always like not very successful in the early ones. By the, by the third yeah. one, they were trying to kind of, you know, he was doing it for the greater good. And he was fighting against Zeus and he meets someone who reminds him of his daughter and stuff like that. And it always kind of didn't work for me. And I always, one of the funniest things I always hear is like, when people are talking about, oh, Kratos in, in God of War 2018, look, he's such a good father and he's learning and, you know, he's, he's going through redemption. It's like, remember that time in God of War 3 on the PS3 where he needs to hold a door open. So he takes a woman and literally wedges her into a, a mechanism so that the switch doesn't pull down you're like yeah that's the same guy does it does he deserve same does he dude. deserve a redemption <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's it's a testament to how good the two recent games are that you know a lot of that stuff does get overlooked he was um like i said yeah he, he was a butcher he was definitely not a good dude he was an absolute wrong in kev <laughs> yeah a rotter through and through well, do you, do you think that's it so, Kev? Is that it for our villains today? Do you have anything else in mind? No, I think that's covered about everything. Right? I feel like between the two of us, you know, we did okay. But, you know, I feel like there's probably hundreds we're forgetting. You know, I'm going to finish this and be like a really obvious one. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's what? We only worked through two out of the 16 numbered Final Fantasies. Like, oh, we have a lot more ground to cover there alone. The whole night in those ones, but we should leave it there. Yeah. What about Sin? That was a good one. You the big chunky monster. Oh, the boy. monster from Final Fantasy yeah. X. I thought you were saying as a villain just the concept of sin just just the the concept of yeah. sin yeah like when you roll over pedestrians and grant that's auto and then you're the villain oh interesting yeah i think that's that's an entire ep- different episode let's not get too philosophical now i think what we should do now is funnily enough wish everyone a merry christmas because <laughs> <laughs> as we record this it's the 12th of december so we're not quite there yet but like you said we won't have an episode out before christmas so everyone i hope you have a, a lovely holiday season I hope you get really cool video games. And if you're not into video games, what do people who don't get games for Christmas get? Like Lynx, isn't it? Yeah, Lynx. Lynx, uh, Lynx Africa. And um, Yeah, I hope you enjoy that. But for now, it's a goodbye from me, Liam, and a goodbye from Kevin. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.